Genesis chapter 18, and it'll be helpful for you to have that passage open as we uh, come to study it together this morning. We're looking today at uh, Genesis 18, verses 16 to 33, verses 16 to 33. Psalm 25, verse 14, uh, sort of governed our study, uh, our last study in the life of Abraham. Psalm 25, verse 14 says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. Abraham, as we thought about last time, is described as a friend of God three times in Scripture. And we saw that friendship on full display earlier in chapter 18. As Abraham gladly provided a meal for the Lord God and the two angels with him who came to his tent. Abraham didn't realize at first that it was the Lord God. But he gladly served him and provided for him and welcomed him. And we saw God repeating his promise of a son for Abraham and Sarah. It was, it was a heartwarming and encouraging scene and likely a moment that Abraham would look back on and cherish for the rest of his life, that friendship between Abraham and God. Well, in the second half of chapter 18, we see a different aspect to the friendship between God and Abraham. Here we see Abraham pleading with God for the souls of Sodom. It's an interesting, in some ways it's a unique passage of scripture that we have here. There are several layers to it. It's a passage that has something to teach us. Uh, Those of us, the spiritual sons of Abraham today, it has something to teach us about our role in the world. It's a text that certainly teaches us about the importance uh, of prayer and the power of prayer. It's a text warning us that eventually God's judgment will come. Similar to what we just read in 2 Peter chapter 3. That he will not delay judgment on this world forever. That he is a holy God with a holy hatred of sin. And must punish sin. But in the midst of all of that again in this passage we see the friendship that existed between God and Abraham. To be a friend of God involves regularly speaking to God as it does in any friendship. It's not much of a friendship you have with someone if you never speak to them. And in many ways the strength of our friendship with God can be measured by the strength of our prayer life. How much do we pray? How how do we pray? What do we pray most about? That's a, a vital aspect of our friendship with God. I want us to consider some of those things today as we see Abraham here pleading with God in prayer. First thing to to notice from this passage today is that God's word fuels Abraham's prayer. God's word fuels Abraham's prayer. Uh, This larger section of the Abraham story is headed towards a shocking climax, the destruction of Of the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities of the region. Sodom has already been mentioned a couple of times earlier in the Abraham story. Uh, We know already that it's a wicked city. And now here in chapter 18 verse 16. There's an ominous note about what is about to happen to Sodom. Uh, Look what it says chapter 18 verse 16. Then the men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom. Now where Abraham was, where the men were when they came to visit Abraham, it was up on a height. So they were literally looking down. But oftentimes in the Old Testament, looking down on someone or something 
It's not just a geographical reference. There's also a spiritual reference here. Going down somewhere is often a description of heading towards sin or heading towards a sinful place in the Old Testament. And as he looks down on Sodom here, God is going to tell Abraham what he is planning for Sodom. And we have this sort of, uh, for want of a better description, the thoughts of God or, or the, the, plan, the purposes of God, you might say, in verse 17. And so in verse 17, God is not speaking aloud to Abraham, but we have God's intentions recorded for us here in verse 17. It says, The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now, I read it in full there because it's a very interesting thing for God to say. What he's saying is that the reason that he is going to reveal to Abraham what is about to happen to Sodom, the reason that God is going to tell Abraham his plans, is because God has a covenantal relationship with Abraham. There's a friendship between them. God is going to bring blessing to all the world through Abraham. That's what he's already promised to do with the covenant that he made with him. And that being the case, Abraham then is privy to some of the the plans and purposes of God for the world. Sodom is God's enemy. Abraham is God's friend. And we tell our friends what we're planning to do, the big decisions that loom in our lives. Jesus said to his disciples, John, I think John 15, Jesus said, you're now my friends. I've, I've told you everything. I've kept nothing from you about what's going to happen to me. And he says, that's because you're my friends. And likewise here, Abraham, the friend of God, is brought into the plans of God. Look at verse 20. God now speaks to Abraham in verse 20. The Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. My friends, let's appreciate God didn't need to go down anywhere or see anything. He's God. He already knows and sees everything there is to know and see about Sodom. But he says these things for Abraham's benefit. What he's saying to Abraham is, whatever happens next, whatever you see happening on the horizon line down in Sodom, you'll know that it is happening based on a fair assessment. That I'm going to go and look at Sodom for myself and make a fair judgment about what is going on in Sodom. That's part of why God tells Abraham what is about to happen. But the other reason that he tells him what is going to happen, friends, is because he is encouraging Abraham to respond in prayer. God gives Abraham his word, and God's word now is going to fuel Abraham's prayer. The pleading, the request that we'll see him make, they're based upon what God's word has just revealed to him. God provides his word, he tells Abraham what's going to happen, so that Abraham will pray. 
even well-meaning Christians, we, we sometimes get very jumbled in our thinking about prayer. Uh, and perhaps we begin to think of prayer as, as a one-way thing, uh, that it's a one-way system, that prayer is something I do when I suddenly discover something that I want to ask God, God to help me with in my life. And of course, that is part of prayer. But actually, you see, our friend God, he draws us to the place of prayer. He speaks to us in his word first, and he arranges the circumstances of our lives, friends, to prompt us to come to the place of prayer, to bring the things that are happening in our lives, to bring the promises that he's made to us in the scriptures, to bring those to him and to fuel our prayers with those things. One writer uses the illustration of a wife uh, casually mentioning, don't know, I don't think it necessarily has to be a wife, by the way, but a wife casually mentioning to her husband, I'm thinking of heading to the shops. And if the husband replies at all, he'll probably reply, okay, see you later. But then she says, I'm thinking of her- heading to Harrods, or I'm thinking of heading to some upmarket furniture shop or the top of the range brand shop. She's, she wants to draw out her husband. She wants him to reply and give his opinion to the situation. And likewise, friends, what God reveals to us in his word, what he brings about in our lives should, in a sense, provoke us to pray. That should fuel our prayers. God here reveals to Abraham that judgment is coming soon on Sodom. Where Abram's nephew Lot lives. And so Abraham responds to that by pleading with God for the righteous in that city. And we'll think about that again shortly. But he pleads with God for mercy and justice. He's not asking God here to turn a blind eye to sin that deserves to be punished. That's not what he's doing. But he asks God to deal fairly with the righteous. And in a similar way, friends, God has revealed to us in his word that His judgment is coming on our whole world. In the New Testament, both the destruction in the times of Noah through the flood and the destruction of the cities of Sodom, they're considered several times in the New Testament to be warnings about the final destruction still to come. We read something of that earlier. 2 Peter uh, chapter 2 mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. And then we read there a few moments ago from chapter 3 verse 10, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Friends, we know what is going to happen to our world. Because our friend, the Lord Jesus Christ, has told us. What are we doing about it? Are we praying for our world the way, the way Abraham, in a sense, prayed for his world? Are we pleading for them as Abraham pleaded with God? Do we respond to the warnings of final judgment to come in God's word with prayer to God for mercy and grace? That there would be many more righteous to be found in this world before judgment comes. We can apply this in other ways too. We ask ourselves at times, why does God bring sickness, difficulty, trial into our lives? We don't always know all the answers, friends, to that. But part of it is he's prompting us to pray. 
He's placing us in situations where we're forced to admit that we don't have all the answers and we don't have all the strength and we can't save ourselves and we need to humble ourselves and pray to him. Why are we to devote ourselves to the why are we to devote ourselves to the church to meeting together with God's people? Part of the reason is so that we can be praying for the needs of one another. The ups and downs that each of us go through should fuel our prayers as a church family, in our home groups, in our midweek prayer meetings at the church building, uh, on the Lord's Day, at other times. And and in fact, if if we take this seriously, if, if the bonds of love between us are strong enough, there are times, friends, when you might find yourself prompted to pray for one another for no other reason than, than God's providence overruling in that moment in your life. You might find yourself on occasion prompted to pray for someone at just the right time, unbeknown to you, they need your prayers at just that moment. I remember once when, actually it was when I was at our Bible college, I was in the middle of my own Bible reading and prayer one afternoon, and a friend of mine came to mind, someone who was serving God with her husband in a foreign country. And I felt strongly compelled in that moment to pray for this person, that just then the Lord would strengthen her and help her with whatever she was facing. And immediately after I prayed for her, I sent her a text and I told her, I've been praying for you, hope everything's okay, hope everything's going all right. And she replied within a few minutes to say that she was so thankful to have heard from me because her husband had just been taken seriously ill and she was on her way to hospital and she, he was already there and she was rushing to get there to find out if he was okay. Now that's not how it normally happens. Some of you have maybe had similar experiences to that. It's, it's not the norm. Usually we get the information first and then we pray informed of what is going on. But sometimes God may do things a little differently. Whether it's through our circumstances, which may be painful or frustrating or testing, whether it's through his word spoken to us from the scriptures, whether it's just in the moment that we are led to pray, friends, God fuels our prayers by his word, by his spirit, by the circumstances of our lives. He wants us in the place of prayer where we can ask him who gives generously for whatever we need. So God's word fuels Abraham's prayer. Secondly, God's character is the foundation for Abraham's prayer. God's character is the foundation for Abraham's prayer. Without good foundations, you can't build anything. You can try, but it'll be a waste of time. How does Abraham know that his praying is not a waste of time? How does he know that God will listen Well, look what he says in verse 23. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous? Far be it from you to do such a thing. And he goes on to say, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just or do what is right? Some of your translations may have. Now again, just so we're not confused about who and what Abraham is praying for, he's not praying for God to turn a blind eye to wickedness. He's not saying, oh God, would you not just go easy on these people? I know they're, they're an, awful, an awful state, they're an awful case, 
But just, you know, can you not just go easy? No, what he's saying is that it wouldn't be right for God to punish righteous people, believers, just because they're living in the same city as unbelievers. One writer says, Abraham makes intercession on behalf of the elect, the people of God. That's who Abraham is praying for here. He's praying that if there would be any believers in Sodom, that God would save the city for their sake. That's why he says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Abraham knows that he's dealing with a perfectly righteous, perfectly fair and just judge. That's who God is. That's who Abraham knows he's dealing with. And this is what sets him apart. This is what sets Yahweh, Abraham's God, apart from all the false gods that the pagans around Abraham worshipped at that time. And we always need to remember, friends, Abraham wasn't living in a vacuum. There were lots of people in his world worshipping lots of false gods. Abraham had been one of them before God called him from Ur to go to the land of Canaan. Abraham himself had worshipped these false gods. And at best, those false gods were just idols. They were just pieces of wood or stone that could say nothing and do nothing to the people that worshipped them. But at worst... At worst, those false gods could have been demons, evil spirits, inciting their followers to sin and immorality and ultimately leading them to death. But here's the thing. Even the people who worship these false gods, they didn't even believe that their gods were good or that their gods always cared about them. Abraham's pagan neighbors believed that their gods were capricious, that they were selfish. Oh, they might answer you someday. They might, give you, they might be gracious and kind and compassionate to you some of the time. Other times they're just going to punish you and they're going to do whatever they feel like. They don't love us. They don't care about us. They just suit themselves. They don't do what is right. Abraham is praying to a different God entirely. He's praying to the one true God sang earlier in Psalm 86, verse 8, O Lord, there is none like you among the gods. God who had called Abraham, who had made promises to Abraham, who has shown grace to Abraham, he's a righteous God. He's the only God. As we sang in Psalm 145 at the beginning of the service, he's perfectly good. He always does what is perfectly good. He makes judgments that are perfectly good. And so Abraham, looking down at Sodom, thinking about Lot, wondering if there are any others like Lot in the city, Abraham says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? That was the foundation. That was the anchor, uh, the, the, the centerpiece for Abraham's prayers. This is what he could build his prayers upon because he knew that God is good and he does good and his judgments are good. Ralph Davis, in his book on Abraham, tells the story of an author named Lloyd Douglas who lived in a boarding house while he was at university. And downstairs from him lived an elderly former music teacher. And each day Douglas would come down the stairs and open the old man's door and say, well, what's the news today? And the elderly music teacher would pick up his tuning fork 
tap it on the side of his wheelchair and say, that is middle C. It was middle C yesterday. It will be middle C tomorrow. It will be middle C a thousand years from now. The tenor upstairs sings flat. The piano across the hall is out of tune. But that is middle C. And God's righteousness, God's goodness and holy character, friends, it's our middle C. It's what doesn't change in a world where everything can seem out of tune, chaotic, chaos at times. God's goodness does not change. Some of you know what it is to face an uncertain future. Maybe all of a sudden your job hanging in the balance. Maybe you've been unfairly treated. Maybe a human judgment has been made. And it's not a fair and right judgment at all. But amidst all of that you can know for sure the judge of all the earth will do what is right. Some of you know what it is to have questions about God's will and God's timing in your lives. Maybe tragedy struck. Maybe you live with deep heartache. Some of us have experienced the the grief of, of miscarriage, for example. Genesis 18 verse 25 has been a pillow for many couples in that situation, wondering about the little life that we haven't yet got to meet. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? You might think our world is a mess. How do people get away with some of the things they've done? There's been a lot of attention in the last few weeks on the anniversary of the uh, Belfast Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland. But the fact is that there are people living with real pain, even anger, as the result of injustices and crimes that haven't been dealt with. This imperfect world will never give us perfect peace or perfect justice. But shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right in the end? The pagans in Abraham's world, just like the followers of false religions in our world today, they might as well have saved their breath. They, they knew that their gods weren't good and that they didn't answer justly and didn't care. But our God is good to all of his creation. He's a God of righteousness goodness and truth as the catechism says when we pray to him that's our foundation that's our hope even when we don't immediately see the answers to prayer that we might have liked that's our reason for bothering to pray to pray in the first place because he does hear us and he will answer us one way or another according to his perfect righteousness So uh, God's word fuels our prayers. God's character is the foundation for our prayers. Thirdly and finally, God's mercy explains the fervency of Abraham's prayer. God's mercy explains the fervency of Abraham's prayer. Or I could have used the word persistence of Abraham's prayer. Because Abraham is persistent. He keeps on praying to God for any righteous souls that there may be in Sodom. That for their sake, God might spare the whole city. Abraham starts off by saying, Lord, if there would be 50 righteous people in Sodom, would you not spare the whole city? Some writers suggest that 100 people would have been considered just the smallest of cities in those days. And so Abraham takes half that number, just even half of a tiny amount of people. Lord God, would you not save the city for them? For them? 
but there aren't 50 righteous people in Sodom. And so Abraham asks for 45, but there aren't 45 righteous in Sodom. So Abraham asks for 40, and then 30, and then 20, and then 10. Abraham keeps on praying. He prays six times. He persists in prayer for Sodom. This place that is known all the world over for its wickedness. That if there would be ten righteous people. That God would be merciful to the whole place. And not destroy the city. Notice the humility. And the reverence and the fervency in Abraham's prayer friends. Look at verse 27. He says I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. I'm nothing. I hardly dare speak he says. In verse 30 he says. Oh let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak. That's real humility from Abraham. And yet he does keep on praying for Sodom. Why? Because he knows that the God. The God who is judge of all the earth. Is also merciful. And gracious. And compassionate. After all Abraham himself. Had received God's mercy and grace. Again. He had been a worshipper of false gods. When he was living in Ur. God had just called him for no other reason than his grace to enjoy friendship with the true and living God. (coughs) And Abraham pleads with God that if there would be as few as ten others like him in Sodom, that the city would be spared the fire of God's judgment. And notice, friends, let's not miss this. God says yes to every single one of Abraham's prayers. He says in verse 32, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. Had there been ten godly people in Sodom, it wouldn't have been destroyed. But as we'll see next week, God willing, in chapter 19, there weren't ten righteous people to be found there. There was just Lot, along with his two daughters. But God's answer to Abraham's prayer, friends, gives us an important principle. That for the sake of the righteous... For the sake of his people, God is willing to show patience and grace to a wicked world. If there had been ten godly people in Sodom, God might have delayed judgment further. I wonder how many towns, how many cities, how many nations in our world today are being spared worse judgment because there are little handfuls of believers in them. You think of our country today, how Far away from God's word we've fallen. You look at some of the laws we've passed. The practices that have been permitted. And in some cases celebrated. And we might think. Why hasn't God just overthrown a nation like ours? The way he overthrew Greece or Rome. Or other such places in the past. Maybe he will. But maybe he hasn't yet. Because of even just a few believers. Still living in this nation. And still praying for our nation. We were studying the book of Revelation last autumn. We saw how our world is already experiencing a measure of God's judgment. You remember uh, the four riders and the four horses um, symbolizing war and famine and death and economic chaos. We always need to remember, friends, our world is already experiencing a measure of judgment. But perhaps it would be even worse were it not that God still has some of his people in 
London, Edinburgh, Belfast, Dublin, New York, Paris, Rome. And perhaps, friends, if God's people would pray, we might see more of his grace and mercy poured out upon not just the Western world, but the whole world, so that there would be more people who would join us in worshipping the name of our God. And this brings us full circle to what we saw at the beginning of the passage. Abraham was a friend of God. Friends of God receive God's word. We've been given the inside scoop as to what is really going on in this world and what God has planned for this world so that we can be a witness to the world, so that we can pray for the world and speak to the world and bring blessing on the world. Just look back at verse 18, how God describes Abraham. Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. How has that come about? It's come about through Abraham's greater descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who brings the covenantal blessings of Abraham to every nation of the world. Four in ten still are unreached. There are many nations and many people to be praying for. And we are to be the mouthpiece of Christ. We are to bring the word of Christ. We are to pray in and through Christ. And be part of the Abrahamic blessing that God has for this world, friends. What Abraham did here, pleading for God, of course his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, also did and still does. You remember how he prayed so fervently for the grace and mercy of God before he went to the cross his high priestly prayer, even while he was on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. There was Christ, the son of Abraham, praying for God's mercy on foolish sinners. He still prays for us even now, our risen Savior seated at God's right hand, making intercession for us. What Abraham did, what Christ is doing, friends, we should also do. We should pray to the God that we know to be good, to be gracious and merciful to our world. We should pray persistently for God in his mercy and grace, remembering as we do so that the judge of all the earth will do what is right. Amen.